and welcome back to the Champagne Rugby Podcast. And today, ladies and gentlemen, you're in for a treat as I'm joined by two-time World Cup winner and all-black legend, Colin Slade. If you're not a rugby player fan, you're going to be a fan after this podcast. And if you are a fan, you're in for a treat. Colin, how are you doing? Thank you for that introduction. It's, uh, it's got me up in the, in the early morning here in New Zealand, so it's a pleasure to be here. It's quite early for you over there, I believe seven or eight in the morning. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, that's not too early, but uh, it's just gone winter here at the moment, so things are a bit, uh, a bit darker at the moment. So, no, no, pleasure to be here. W- were you much of an early riser during your career as a rugby player? Yeah, yeah. You kind of, you kind of learn to. Yeah, you have to be, I guess, for these some of these early mornings and stuff. Um, and now that I, you know, now that I finished footy and. I'm into you know a job that starts at eight o'clock. I sort of have to get out uh, and do whatever training I want to do quite early, and and also my children do tend to wake up early at the moment. So uh, sort of five thirty is pretty much a standard wake up call in our household. Fair enough. Get getting the early grind and hustle uh, bustle in the working life. So going from playing rugby full time to now full time dad, full time career. How's that transition been, and how's it, how's it all going for you? Yeah, I mean, it's going really well. I'm, I'm, uh, so I'm working at a, at a New Zealand um, investment company called Force Both Bar. So it's it's very different than the rugby environment, very different, uh, you know, culture, but uh, it's going really well. And um, yeah, I mean, stepping away from rugby is always challenging, but um, it's made it a little bit easier, I suppose, having a, having something lined up afterwards. Uh, you know, but you know, even though I had something lined up, it's still pretty tough doing the whole retirement thing, stepping away from a game you played for 15 years. And um, I still miss it a little bit, but uh, in saying that, you know, I'm, I'm 35 year old now and um, had a long time playing, thankfully. But uh, it's time to to get this carcass somewhere a little bit more, uh, a little bit more warmer, but uh, also a little bit more safer and, and, and rest up a bit. Can you do your job online at all, or are you kind of having to be in the office? Because uh, I know you like to travel a lot. I, I listened to one of the podcasts with Waterlad, and you were saying that you really like to when you're in Europe for Poe, for example. Uh, are you able to do your job online? I mean, we are, but typically we don't. We're in the office every day, and uh, so what we do is we, we manage people's money, and so we have to be in the office and around the office and meeting clients, and we obviously exchange ideas and stuff. So, uh, you know, we could do, but, uh, you know, the, the office is where we need to be, and this is where I am. Fair enough, fair enough. So transitioning from the office to the rugby field, uh, what I always like to ask the guests as soon as we jump on is what kind of led you in the first place to start pursue a career in rugby and who were kind of your biggest inspirations and role models growing up to get into the sport? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the All Blacks are the obvious inspiration for any New Zealand kid. Um, you sort of grow up and, and mimic a few games in the backyard and that's what, what I did and and, and in the schoolyard, you sort of play and you try and be some of these uh, some of these legends, you know. Even though I'm I'm clearly not him, but I tried to be a you know Jonah Lomu when I was younger and um, in the backyard and had a lot of fun doing that. And a guy like Andrew Murdens was sort of my guy growing up, um, being able to kick the ball the way he did. So I, I was fortunate enough when I was younger. We lived on a little bit of a lifestyle block and uh, had a bit of bit of land, so had a bit of space to to kick the ball without trying to break too many windows. And um, yeah, that's sort of where I learned. And got inspired to play, I guess. And your your rise to rugby, I know you um, went to Christchurch Boys School with, uh, and you had quite an impressive run 
there with uh, winning two national titles. How how is that kind of uh, transition playing such a high level of schoolboy rugby at such a young age? Yeah, I mean, we, we, like like you said, it was a very uh, good first fifteen, and um, yeah, we had a couple of really good years there. So it sort of spurred spurred the uh, sparked the interest, brother, and um, yeah, so you know, boys high is a special place. So so much so that I actually live opposite the on the same road as boys high now to the state. So sort of come all the way back around again. But uh, yeah, I mean, boys high is where it, I guess it started. I was actually a, a bit of a cricketer as well growing up, so it was a school that had both options, but. Um, I suppose on the back of the team going really well in the rugby circles, it, I sort of got picked up and um, into the rugby sort of network, and um, and off she went. So you you started with the with the Christchurch Boys School, and then you joined uh, the the Canterbury side. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. You sort of like I said, you get picked up and sort of uh, put into an academy type thing, and and was lucky enough that Canterbury got uh, you know looked at me and and, and found me. Uh, found me a spot in your program and um, then yeah, sort of got signed up by Canterbury and, and for the ITM Cup team at the time. I'm not sure what it's called now, but yeah. And then obviously that puts you under the nose of the Crusaders coaches and, and then you get selected for that and that's how it works over over here. And what was, how did you kind of feel? Did you, did you think that you were always, that you were kind of destined for this to happen or did you, were you, what were kind of your thoughts going in? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I don't think you can at 19-year-old. You just thought you don't really plan too much. You have dreams, I guess, and uh, who knows if they're realistic at that age, but uh, you give it a crack and, um, you know, I know where I want it to be, but, uh, you know, you don't really understand the, the process there. You sort of learn as you go and, you, um, yeah, you just play play well week in, week out and, and, and stuff happens that you don't really plan for and you get picked by certain players and by certain coaches rather and, and make certain teams along the way and, um, yeah. And you're probably yeah just living in the moment, so it's a uh, it's a fun ride looking back on it now, and you know so many what ifs could have happened and, and gone differently, but uh, really thank, thankful the way it did go. Did you did you ever think that um, a 19 year old Colin Slade would end up going on to win two two World Cups and smashing it and travelling all over the world and playing rugby like that's just crazy, man. Yeah, I mean, at 19, hell no, like that was never, like I said, that was never a part of the, the picture. You know, you sort of had these ideas of where you wanted to go and what you wanted to do, but you didn't know exactly what that looked like. And, um, you know, to play for the All Blacks was the ultimate goal and everything in between is, is a bonus and, um, or rather just a, a part of the journey, the path you follow. And, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of blanks got filled in there along the way, but ultimately I got to that goal and, uh, yeah, it's proud looking back on it, I guess, and, you know, I've just gone through the obviously the decision to retire, and uh, you know, one one thing that did go through my mind was, you know, look, as a as a twenty year old when you started, uh, you know, would you have taken this career, and and I would have taken it with both hands, you know, and that made me, it easier for me to to walk away and and not probably try and do an extra couple of years um, on the end of it, and uh, yeah, so yeah, very happy to to cut a to cut a long answer short. Yeah. So so for someone that's I've never been to New Zealand. Could you just give me a bit of an idea of what really is kind of like the rugby culture over there? Because you you hear about it all the time, and you you see it in the in online and in the papers and everything. But what could you just give like a really clear idea of kind of what it is like 
for young lads that are growing up being surrounded so often with with rugby and everything? Yeah, so I mean, in New Zealand, we're not we're not a big country. We don't have a we, we play a lot of sports, but obviously, uh, we're not pulled by a lot of of big sports. We won't really rugby and cricket are tend to be our predominant sports. We've got obviously other sports, football and and basketball and and the like. We're not we're not completely like that. But every sort of kid grows up and and you sort of get brought into this culture and the weekends are about watching the All Blacks play and um, you know even on the news every day there's something about the All Blacks and it sort of just fed into you um, and then I suppose that culture really kicks off when you start to go to high school and I mean all the, all the high schools have got first 15s and that those competition games are you know grudge matches against local schools we've obviously got you know big hackers and things like that that we do pre-game that sort of I mean, the crowd and the rest of the school get involved in, and it's quite a really cool atmosphere. And um, I suppose it gives you gives you a little bit of uh, aspirations when you get to school that you want to go out there and perform this hacker and represent your school, and and that's sort of I suppose how it how it gets fed in. Um, and then yeah, like I said, it, everyone plays a little bit of rugby when they're younger. Um, as a young fella, you're out there at lunch playing a bit of rugby, and that's sort of how it goes. And it's just in the DNA a wee bit. And then as you get older, people filter out and, and do other things. But as a youngster, that's typically how it goes. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd probably argue that maybe that's changing a little bit at the moment. But um, but yeah, in saying that, we're, we're still getting some quality young fellas coming through the system here that are, uh, you know, I think the All Blacks are, are going to be in good shape for a while. Do you think that, you mentioned that you were slightly hesitant there. Do you think there's maybe slightly a less uh, emphasis on the rugby squad and maybe more emphasis on other sports, perhaps? Well, I think, you know, there's all this research now coming out that uh, making parents think, secondly, about whether, you know, rugby is a good sport, uh, you know, for their child and stuff like that. So, you know, maybe maybe it's it's something, but, I mean, that's pure anecdotal. I'm just uh, off the cuff here. There's no numbers to support that. It's just... Uh, you know what I hear in the media is that um, you know some some teams might not be you know having the numbers to play and stuff like that, and, and kids are certainly you know exploring other opportunities out there now, and a lot of other sports are doing really well. Um, you know, we, like I mentioned before, we we do have other sports here, and you know I suppose rugby's been so major that uh, when other sports are promoted and encouraged and and grow, you know that obviously takes a little bit of you know what would be market share, I guess, away from rugby, but. And saying that, it's still very much our, our dominant sport here. So, going going back to when you were you just been called up to Canterbury and feeding into the Crusaders, what what was it kind of like getting called into the Crusaders, which is like known for such to be such a legendary team? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, similar to the story of when when I you know made the All Blacks, it's sort of but on the first scale, it's, you almost get this like imposter syndrome where. You've you've probably spent the first year in the team, and you're still a fan of the team and a fan of the players. And it's you sort of walk in there, and guys that you you know watched as a teenager, or um, you know you've been out drinking with your mates at the the pub or whatever a couple of months earlier. You're watching you know Richies and and Dan's and things like that playing for the All Blacks, and you're having a few beers, and all of a sudden you're you're sharing a locker room with them, or you know receiving a pass from them in training, and um, you do get that. Starstruck, and to be fair, I mean that was most of your first year, and then you know second year probably as well. You start to find your your own confidence, I guess, but uh, you know it can be pretty intimidating as a sort of a nineteen twenty year old coming into a professional environment, and 
you know, I mean, you can't really, you know, wait too long. You've actually got to perform, otherwise you don't stay in the environment. So you've got to get over that to a certain degree. And, um, you know, I probably struggled with that off the field, but on the field it became quite comfortable for me. Um, maybe it took 12 months or so, but, you know, you sort of learn that, uh, you know, the way to win their respect and get over that is to just perform. And, and that's where your focus has got to be because, you, you know, you're fighting for your job at a 20-year-old. Would you say that, uh, yeah, because it's quite a young stage to go in and then be thrown into quite a massive, renowned, massively renowned setup. I can imagine it was quite intimidating uh, in in many ways. How, how did you kind of like deal with some of the pressures and, or did you feel any sort of particular pressure to uh, perform? I mean, there certainly is pressure. Like I said, you're sort of, I mean, you're fighting for a job as a, as a 19 or 20 year old. Um, but you're also fighting for respect. You're fighting, you know, for your own um, pride, I guess. You're playing in front of family and friends all of a sudden and representing such a historic um, brand. But, geez, what an opportunity it is. And you actually go out there and, and you all of a sudden grow an extra arm in a leg and, you you know, you're playing with guys who are the best in the world. So that makes your job easier in many respects as well. You're obviously playing some more quality and higher quality opposition, but... Um, you kind of find that you, you rise to the occasion, I guess. And um, yeah, uh, I mean, it's not been really something I've looked back on those emotions um, when I was first there, but, you know, having reflected on it now, it, it was pretty real and pretty, uh, yeah, pretty enjoyable though, you know, despite all those pressures. What what piece of advice would you have for young young players who are maybe 17, 18 years old and breaking into academy squads? What piece of advice would you have for them to kind of, take their game to the next level? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one, I guess. Um, you know, one thing you see from time to time is that guys are happy to, to make it there. Um, and that's and that's good enough, I suppose. And that's their, their, their job done. You know, reality is that's when the hard work starts. And that's when, if you want to make a, you know, a career out of it, um, just being there is not not good enough. You've got to you've got to scrap for everything and and fight pretty hard and and do your best to get you know as as comfortable as you can in an environment so you can be yourself. You know it can be pretty intimidating. I guess going into an environment like that, like I said, you get a bit of imposter syndrome. You get probably probably like a little bit internal and uh, a little bit shy, I guess. But uh, you know the quicker you can get around some of these experienced guys and and learn and grow and feel comfortable. The quicker you'll be yourself and the better you'll play. So. And then ultimately the goal's got to be, you know, am I still playing in 10 or 15 years' time? Um, needs to be the bigger picture, not just being happy enough to, to make it. So what was kind of like the moment when you broke through and you were like, you overcame the imposter syndrome? Uh, I mean, it's probably an interesting one, really. I'd probably say two, two or three years. Um, I think there was no real one moment, I guess. And certain teams are different, um, ha have different, I suppose, inflection points. Um, you know, the Crusaders, I, I got maybe the first year was a little bit, a little bit like that, but, um, you know, I got over that pretty quickly. Canterbury was probably even easier, the, the you know, domestic competition. We had a bit of success there and won, a comp won the competition my first year, and you sort of, you know, you ride that wave a little bit. The All Blacks probably took a little bit longer because you are on a, a bigger stage in front of it, you know, in the entire country. And, you know, it's all very well to 
get the support of your local Christchurch region and, and that sort of stuff, but you've actually got to win over the, the other fans around the country then. And um, that probably took a little bit longer because maybe because I didn't cement a spot in that team or for quite a while, so um, or if ever. But uh, yeah, I think different different teams have different stages, I guess. And did you, when you were starting off and you started winning trophies and everything, um, were you kind of close with the boys or was it more that <clears throat> you were, how, how was like the team atmosphere and everything and the, how did, how did that kind of play a role in, in the winning of the first trophy with Canterbury? Yeah, well, I think when you're winning, everyone's, everyone's makes up and everything's easy and you get along and the bears in the, in the changing room are flowing and it's probably not until you, you have a, a year or so or, or a team where you're not winning, that's when you start to put a bit of strain on relationships. But uh, fortunately, like you mentioned at Canterbury, we, we had some great success. Like I, I actually can't recall how many titles in a row we won. Um, and I was in and out a wee bit with the All Blacks, but might have been five or six years in a row we won. So, I mean, that made that environment really highly enjoyable. It was probably our fun time of year because we kept winning, like I said, and it was fun. Crusaders were a bit up and down. I went down to the Highlanders for a couple of years as well, and we had some good years, but, um, you know, we also had a, had a really tough year one year, and, um, you know, that made it a bit harder as well. So, you know, like I said, your relationships are easy when you're winning, but when you're, when you're not, that's when... Uh, you know, relationships are probably a little bit more professional and a little bit more, um, you know, how to holding each other to account, which uh, can be tough, but, you know, good time for growth in those times. And, and then that's where you actually grow and mature as a player. And, you know, through tough times, uh, you know, leaders stand up and, and, men, are, and men become men and, and everyone else hides to cover. So it's, uh, you know, it's while it's a challenging time, it's, it's good for your, your long-term career path, I guess, to experience a little bit of adversity. Which players or coaches kind of had a big influence on your growth and acceleration into the sport? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question. I get that one a wee, but um, look, I had so many great coaches that I don't think there was ever one. You know, the first coach you had was probably the one that gave you the opportunity. So I had Rob Penny and, and John Haggart were two guys, um, and certainly Pens might be someone you're familiar with. He coached Munster for a couple of years. So, um yeah, they gave me my first shot and were really good at that whole getting you comfortable as a young fella. Um, but then, yeah, I had so many good coaches for so many different reasons. Jamie Joseph was another fantastic coach for me. He was fantastic for, as, as a leader. Like he was uh, the first coach who really um, helped me grow from, from a young guy to, to more, of a, more of a leader within a team, just, just watching him. Um, you know, Aaron Major was a great coach for me as a backs coach. Um, but obviously, you know, the all that coaches are, uh, you know, at the top of their game as well. So, they were, you know, it was great to go in there. And first of all, I had Greg Henry and then Steve, Steve Henson, Wayne Smith, um, Ian Foster as well. You know, we had some great coaches there to, to help me grow. So, yeah, like I've had, um, you know, Todd Blackett, obviously. Uh, so, yeah, I've had a number of coaches, I guess, that uh, help me grow in certain ways and they have different strengths and weaknesses, I guess. Some le some absolute legends of the game uh, that you mentioned. I can imagine any would have been a pleasure to have played under any of those coaches you named. Was that was there any coach that you particularly uh, got along with better than the others? Uh, no, no, I think oh, you'd have to ask them that. I, I guess, but um, I felt like I got along with you know with all the coaches. I mean, especially like I said, you know, the Canterbury level, where probably I probably became a bit more of a senior member earlier. 
um, that made it easier as a coach. You, I mean, a coach-player relationship. You, you tend to develop that, uh, you know, a little bit more. Um, Tabo Matson was another guy that, uh, you know, that uh, I worked a lot with and I got along with as well. So they're just sort of popping into my head as they come. But um, yeah, uh, yeah. No, all the coaches were had. I felt like I had good relationships with them. I don't think any of them uh, treated me too unfairly. You know, if I didn't play well, they they let me know. But uh, for the most part, they were good relationships. So, how how did it then transition that you were then called up for the All Blacks, and how was that first debut experience, first hacker, and you got to pull on the black jersey? Yeah, I mean the first my first call up, it was a little bit of an interesting story. I sort of got the All Blacks had a camp in, in Christchurch, um, and had a few injuries, and I just got a call, you know, a couple of days before the camp, and it was you know, do you want to come down for a for a couple of days and give us a hand at training and you know I sort of uh, went down there and gave my hand for a couple of days and then at the end of the week you know they went home and or they went off to I think Hamilton or something like that to prepare for a test match and uh, the manager Darren Shan came up to me and goes you know do you want to um, we'd like you to come up to Hamilton with us and um, give us a hand up there and I go, cool you know uh, I'm assuming you know my Canterbury coach or Crusaders coach or Chris Canterbury at that time was okay with it and he goes, yep yep sure we've told him Sweet. And all of a sudden, I go home the next day in the in the paper that I've been called into the All Blacks, and uh, and uh, yeah, I didn't really know. I was like, hang on, am I in the team? And I didn't really know how to behave. And it was like, oh yeah, I've got all these messages. And so, but yeah, it's all very well going up there. And, and that first year, I didn't actually play. And then you know, a similar sort of story happened the following year. Except you know, I knew that uh, someone got injured and they needed someone to play. And it was, um, I think Dan Carter got injured, and and it was the first Test match was. Uh, um, in Sydney in 2010 and yeah I got back and he came straight in and put on the bench and uh, you know that was a similar sort of experience yeah you sort of have that imposter syndrome or you're sitting on the bench and, and watching this all black test as a fan um, and then all of a sudden it's like the coach I mean the trainer yells out right it's warm up time so shit I'm on the you know I'm actually part of this game again so you've sort of got to go from being a spectator to getting ready to play and go on and then you know your number gets called and the heart rate goes from, you know, whatever it was to 160 beats a, a minute as you're standing on the sideline doing a couple of leg swings. And, yeah, and then you get to run out there and it was pretty uh, pretty crazy. Um, yeah, I, I guess, again, upon reflecting, it's a um, pretty unique feeling, I guess, and emotions to go out there and, and represent your country and achieve that dream and, and not you were thinking at that, at that particular time, but, you know, something you thought about afterwards to sort of sit back and, and thankfully we won that game and... Uh, yeah, it was a good experience and very fond memories, I guess, of that first test. And, and yeah, prior to the to the game, the Haka as well was pretty pretty crazy too to to go out there and perform something you'd done many times um, at home as a young fella or on the weekend with your boys and had a few too many beers and you're, you're doing a Haka in someone's garage um, to be actually do it uh, on a on a on a, in the all black jersey on the on the big stage was pretty pretty uh, yeah pretty crazy. Yeah, I I can imagine that. Yeah. Just massive, massive stuff. Who were who were some of the boys that you were uh, were in the squad with you at, at that time? Who who was kind of in and around the squad at, when you were making your debut? Yeah, there was some. Um, yeah, it was a pretty established team at that stage. So uh, you obviously Richie and Dan with some guys there, Mark Nonu and Conrad Smiths, and and guys I ended up playing a lot of rugby with, but guys that I you know idolised through 
you know, it just shows how long they were there for. You know, all through my high school years, they were all still playing. So, um, yeah, Brad, Brad Thorns and uh, I suppose it made it a little bit easier that some of these guys were Crusaders as well. So you can sort of have that prior relationship. But then you, you, know, you go into this other team and you've got the rest of these, you know, these uh, legendary All Blacks that Joe Rokosoko is now. Yeah. So you you uh you got called up uh 2010 with Australia and then uh that 2011 was the big year the World Cup home World Cup how did that feel kind of running up and get then getting called up to play for the New Zealand for the first time Yeah I mean it was a bit of an interesting year I I'd actually broken my year, jaw twice that year and played bugger rugby and I didn't think I had a shot and then all of a sudden you know, a little bit of uh, news came that I was, you know, I had to get ready despite being injured. Hey, just be ready. But yeah, so it was a, yeah, it was an interesting wee uh, year, I guess. I sort of thought that my my World Cup was over, and then basically, yeah, like I said, got got told to start preparing for it. So it's kind of like, hang on, all right, well, yeah, better get ready to go and and made the team. Um, probably without any enough rugby under my belt, but uh, you know, a very huge opportunity, and it was a massive goal of mine, I guess, um, to make that team. So yeah, to make the team was was great, and that's where I sort of mentioned before about making the team was one thing, but that's when the work starts. And probably that that year, I was happy to make the team. I kind of thought that uh, you know that was it, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh, crap, now I've got to get ready to play, and it was a little bit a uh, little bit stressful, but. Um, yeah, got there in the end, um, and then yeah, we had a, we had a good year and a good uh, a good outcome. It was a it was an interesting journey, and, and and so interesting they made a movie out of it. But uh, you know, a whole lot of us fell over and got injured. But uh, you know, on the whole, it was a it was a once in a lifetime experience being able to um, you know win that World Cup under so much pressure in front of in front of a nation, um, and it was quite a you know. An overwhelming environment to be in New Zealand at that time. We stayed in a hotel right in the middle of Auckland CBD, so we were kind of trapped in this hotel. We couldn't really leave um, other than go to training and back. And um, yeah, probably on reflection, we probably should have stayed somewhere a little bit more uh, on the extremities where we could have relaxed a wee bit. But um, it is what it is, and we got the result just and and yeah, and got that monkey off our back to win the World Cup. So. Just to take you back there, you, you mentioned about the, the preparation and going into the World Cup. Did you guys think that you were going to be favourites going into the World Cup? Did you feel did you feel a certain confidence that you might have won or not? Um, well, we certainly hoped and we knew um, that we were capable, but I guess, you know, we had that soaking tag at the World Cup at the time that we couldn't we couldn't get over the line. So we had that added pressure, which um, you know, didn't help at all, but certainly helped in the motivation, but the reality was that um, we had to plan for that. We had to deal with that and we had to deliver despite that tag. So that was all that preparation was sort of geared towards the mental aspect of being able to handle, you know, that, that pressure of and playing in front of your own nation and, um, you know, with the history of not performing at World Cups. So that's where all our energy went. We did a lot of work on the mental skills stuff um, Gilbert Anoka was, was our mental skills guy who is still with the team till today um, but um, yeah Kerry Evans was another mental skill coach so there were a lot of guys floating around saying well hang on how do we handle this pressure in a high pressure situation I mean knockout footy is very different um, and certain northern hemisphere teams um, tend to rise for the occasion and give us trouble at the World Cup and, and that was France obviously and, and they nearly did at that World Cup too so it's uh 
yeah, it was, uh, it was yeah, yeah, a lot of preparation win then. Um, yeah, I'll leave it there. France was kind of like the bogey team around 2007, 2011. For I mean, even for a lot of teams in the World Cup, it, you never know which kind of France is gonna gonna turn up. What what sort? You mentioned a lot of the 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 mental preparation. What what do you think it was specifically that the All Blacks did differently that other teams didn't implement as well that led to the eventual win? Um, I mean, it's a good question. I can't speak on behalf of the other teams, so I don't know what they did. But, I mean, we knew we had the talent. It was, um, we knew we had the talent in 2007 where we, you know, we lost to, when I say we, I wasn't part of the team, but, um, you know, the All Blacks lost to, to France and Cardiff there and it's probably New Zealand's darkest rugby day. Um, and we learned a lot from that as a team and it was always sort of referenced throughout the preparation to 2011 is that, you know, when the going gets tough, we can't go missing in a game like that when, when the opposition such as France or whoever gets a bit of momentum, we've got to learn how to, you know, absorb it and then redirect it and control it and, and, and mentally not go into our shells. And I suppose, and I, again, I can't speak for other teams, but that was the first real push we had in New Zealand rugby was to really drive a mental skills coach and, and getting that involved because, you know, a player doesn't change week in, week out, only his mental state physically, only his mental state does. And, um, we, we you know we'd always sort of go into games as as favourites and sometimes we wouldn't perform and the question was why and, and sort of being able to to grow that understanding and then obviously if you can understand it you can deal with it and um, adapt your behaviour afterwards uh, so the yeah the All Blacks sort of learnt that and I, look I don't think we mastered it 2011 we had all these ideas um, uh, looking back on it now comparing it to 2015 um, you know guys that had four more years. And I'm assuming we'll get to 2015, but we had a lot more time sort of refining that approach um, and we got a lot better out of it with experience. And that's one thing that, you know, I actually got asked about it the other day was, you know, how much value is experience? And experience is massive when it comes to World Cup time because you've got that added pressure um, and all that, all the baggage that comes with the World Cup of, you know, that go, you know, win or go home sort of stuff that can be quite intimidating and, yeah, we were able to handle that even better in 2015. But we had the concept in 2011 that we sort of introduced and, you know, we sort of blew and, and that was the seeds, I guess, we learned and, and we grew from that. And take, take, kind of just take us through what what was that process of going into the World Cup because you you were you kicked off with nicely home World Cup, home match, uh, and you had a good few rounds, but then you had quite an injury crisis. Uh, at number 10 with Carter going down uh, and then you you were then put into the number 10 uh, jersey. How did that kind of feel, that that kind of pressure of filling Carter's um, uh, boots uh, that after the years and years that he'd put in? Did you feel kind of like pressure? I mean, as a 23, 24-year-old there? Yeah, I mean, there was pressure, but... Um... And we'd sort of talked about it as a team that uh, we've got to handle adversity and whatever that might look like, we've got to do it. And I guess, you know, it kind of called our bluff and it, and it happened. And and I'll, while we're on the surface of it, you know, we tried to put on a brave face. There was probably a little bit of, you know, oh, shit, here's our excuse that if we don't win, this is why, because we've lost Dan Carter. And um, But I think, you know, we had to roll up our sleeves and get on with it. There was no, nothing we could do and change about it. And that was part of that sort of, we had the idea of it. We had the concept of being mentally resilient and then 
what does that look like? And that probably took a little bit of time. And, and you know, unfortunately, I didn't last too long to, to sort of see that through. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to... You know, the media obviously painted a, a picture that it was panic stations. Um, but it was just a process we, we got through and we needed to get through and we got there in the end. But initially, it was probably a bit of a shock to everyone and we certainly felt his disappointment. But, um, yeah, I guess, you know, I felt pretty pretty confident going in there that I could I could play um that was for sure but you know it was yeah disappointing that uh I couldn't see it through and, and got injured in the next so it would have been nice to see that through and, and uh yeah finish that story but it didn't happen um someone else got to got to finish it for us and, and ultimately won and that's what matters yeah you guys got the win in the end but what was it like kind of the celebrations after you'd won and managed to beat France and get rid of the bogey team? Oh, it was a weird one. We didn't really know how to react, I guess. Obviously, you have a fair few beers, and, and but it was probably a feeling of relief than anything. It was, you know, we'd had this monkey on our back since 1987. And, you know, for a team that uh, sort of prides itself on well, trying to be the number one in the world um, in any sport, that was, our, that was our goal. And we needed to win that to, to validate that aspiration, I guess. And, so you know when you work so hard for something and you and you get it, it's uh, it was yeah such a relief. It was it was a bit different. Two thousand fifteen, I think we probably you know enjoyed that whole environment better and that whole time better. But uh, two thousand eleven was just so intense. We worked so hard for it and we got there and it was kind of like, oh now what? You know, it was kind of like obviously we celebrated, but um, we thought so hard about winning it. Uh, we didn't really put much thought into it afterwards, and but we did the parades and stuff like that, and we certainly enjoyed it. It was a hell of an experience and one that I'll never forget. Do you, do you still keep in touch with many of the boys? Any reunions uh, from that old World Cup Day squad? Yeah, we had um, we had a couple of them planned, but then they all got sort of binned by uh, by COVID, and I think in the end it sort of ended up being a, a smaller group the following year, and just sort of Auckland-based guys up there. But um, yeah, I mean, still still a few of them, especially the local guys around Christchurch and stuff here. Uh, you see a bit of, but uh, yeah, bit of a funny one. You sort of uh, go on your own path. So I guess everyone was at different stages. I mean, I was a young guy and I kept playing for 15 years. Some of those guys retired after that World Cup and or the next one and, and have gone off and done various things. So transitioning on, you don't you didn't win just one World Cup, but you won you won two World Cups. And there's only a select few uh, players in the history of Rugby World Cup winners that have been able to say that they've won two World Cups. How does that feel to be one of those players? And how did your experience differ from winning in 2011 to then winning in 2015? Yeah, I mean, it's probably not something I, um, you know, I probably realise and understand, but um, it is, or, you know, it is a really cool tag to have, I guess. It's not something that gets thrown around much. You sort of just, right now, it feels like a different lifetime ago and, I'm sort of in my new job now and just going about my life and and back to back to reality. But uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah something I suppose it's uh, good on the CV anyway. I'm um, sorry, what was the second part of that question? What was your World Cup experience? How did it differ from 2011 to then 2015? Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, I think we've covered 2011, but you know, in terms of it being quite intense, but uh, and me being a younger guy, but 2015 was. 
um, it was an amazing experience. I had a, had good fun. It was it was over in London, um, and I think it was kind of on the back of two things really. I probably went in with a little bit more realistic expectations. I was you know I was the number three ten. That's where Dan Bowden Barrett, um, and then I was the third and sort of a guy that would fill in anywhere. I was playing a bit of fullback, but a wing. Even managed a bit of halfback for the All Blacks, so it's uh, sort of played everywhere. But that was kind of my job was to just go in there and be, um, you know. I sort of accepted that. And also, you know, I'd signed overseas to go to France uh, about six months prior to the World Cup. So, you know, I, while I wanted to make that my final swan song and, and be in the 2015 World Cup, you know, I, I wasn't sure if that was going to ruin my chances. But, you know, I, I made the team and that was, you know, it was awesome. Uh, but I went into the World Cup knowing it was my last sort of stint. And not everyone can do that. They don't know when the last game for the All Blacks are going to be half the time. Um, so I sort of went in there and, and um, just said, like, I'm just going to enjoy this as much as I can and um, soak it up. And it was a lot easier World Cup, you know, to to enjoy. It wasn't easy in terms of outcome, but it was a lot easier to enjoy because, you know, we had that monkey off our back. It wasn't in our home backyard. We could go for a, you know, go surf the tubes for a couple of hours and, and uh, not get pestered. And it was, uh, I, yeah, had a great way. It was a great way to finish the World Cup. Uh, sorry, finish my, my black career. And then you went from... You said you were you went to France so after that. So what kind of motivated your move to France and uh how was your experience in France? Yeah, um so I mean it was a big decision to leave and to give up your black dream, but you know, like I it's a big world out there and the idea of playing overseas and experiencing something different uh, always appealed to me. So it was either going to be the end or probably in two more years' time. I think we had the line coming up. So that was a big decision, but uh, ultimately I decided that uh you know, the opportunity comes up, you know, it was a good contract. Obviously, the money was right. Um, but also, you know, that just it was a cool cool thing to do from a, uh, you know, a young fella who uh, all the way in New Zealand, you know, to go and live and play and, and see the rest of the world and France and Italy and, and all these other places that I went. Uh, and we didn't have kids at the time. So going over at 28, 27, 28, allowed us to go over there and travel and, and do all that. And, I think looking back now, it was the best decision I made because, uh, you know, as a, as a life experience thing to go and be doing the other things, um, yeah, it was just amazing and, and had some great memories. And then, you know, we had kids and then we couldn't travel as much and, you know, ultimately ended up going to Japan, a bit closer to home. But, uh, yeah, we had, we had some fun there. And how, how was it in Japan? How did kind of rugby in I guess let's start with France. How did rugby and French rugby come in the top 14 kind of compare to uh, super rugby? Were you kind of shocked or surprised in any sort of way? Yeah, I think certain players handle it differently. And I think the biggest message I'd probably say is sort of go to France with a really open mind, um, especially when you come from New Zealand and probably even more so from the Crusaders where, you know, this is a formula that works. This is what we do really, really rad. Then you go to France and it's completely different and some players can try and force changes and say, oh, this is how we should be doing it. And and you, you just can't do that in France. This is You've got to adapt. You're not you're not trying to adapt them. So you go over there and you, yeah, your eyes wide open and you just prepare for anything and, and you get everything. It's, uh, it's a pretty wild place. But, uh, you know, some of my best rugby memories probably are in France. You know, you win some games, especially away games, if you manage to, to squeak a few away games, you know, the atmosphere against the fans, you know, even against the against the ref when you're playing uh, an away game, and there's no real expectation, I guess. Um, 
to have to well to, you want to win but um you know it's 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 quite rare to get away win so when you get one uh geez, it's some good fun and the Frenchies love a love a, love a party afterwards too when you you know you're on the bus for four hours on the way home and you're having a few wines on the on the on the road home to enjoy it especially after a win so it was um yeah look, I, love, I love I love France it's a it's an amazing place um, the style of rugby is very different but um, again, you go in there and adapt and, and learn a new style of rugby, which I think is really, really important as a as a ten. You know, you sort of got to adapt completely your game to to the team on the day and how they're feeling and the, and the conditions and all that sort of stuff. And uh, it grew me a lot as well. Especially in the Basque country as well, uh, down in France, southwest, it's um, rugby's pretty much uh, similar similar to uh, New Zealand, similar sort of vibe, similar sort of religion, let's say. Uh, for the passion for the sport. So I can imagine that was nice to have. How was it kind of adapting to the French language? Yeah, I mean, it's challenging. But I, I mean, I enjoyed that challenge. I went over there young enough to give it a crack. You know, I sort of thought, well, I'm going to live here for, well, turned out to be five years. But, um, you know, I signed a three-year, two-and-a-half-year deal and then another couple of years. So I knew I was going to go over there and had to learn it. And that's the expectation I had. And I gave it everything. Um, and, you know, it's quite interesting. I get asked if I was fluent. Um and the answer is, you probably think I was, but I, you know, reality was you're never fluent um, when you're not a natural Frenchie. It's a, it's a tough language to get your head around, but uh, you know, I enjoyed it and speaking a, a bit of it in the end. And you, know, you just had to roll your sleeves up and give it a crack because uh, yeah, sure. that's what they appreciate. But uh, yeah, yeah, that no, was good fun. And what was your favourite memory uh, from your French experience? Yeah, I mean, I sort of touched on it. We had a couple of good wins there, which uh, we weren't expected to. You know, Poe wasn't uh, a powerhouse of French rugby, but you go away and, you you know, I think we were beat Toulouse one year, we beat Claremont one year. We had a couple of good years there where, uh, you know, even in, we only played the Challenge Cup, so we went pretty well in those things to play some European rugby. You know, I was a bit disappointed not to play the, the big stuff, but that's just the way it was. Um, the big Heineken Cup games, but uh, that's the way it was. But, yeah, we had a couple of good years there where, you know, you sort of ride this wave of French emotion. The, the city gets behind you uh, when you're winning. And, um, geez, it was a, yeah, we had a good time. We had a good crew of international or foreign players, mainly New Zealand and Australians. Um, you know, obviously a few Fijians and stuff like that as well. But, you know, and, and our French team that, that that made it really enjoyable off the field and for the families and all that stuff, really, really important to enjoy your French experiences to, to make sure your families are happy. And we had a good crew, support crew of other families there. So, yeah, that, that's probably my highlight, I think. I think at the end of the day, the, the people that you're with will be the ones that will make the experience what it is, um, essentially. And what, what's mm. kind of been the weirdest thing that you that's ever happened or you've seen on a, on a rugby field? Yeah, it's a good, good, good question. Oh, jeez. I mean, strikers are always an interesting one. Something you, you don't plan for life. I don't really recall too much in the end. Um, I suppose one game for the Crusaders, we were down to 12 men in South Africa. That was a um, for about a 10-minute period. That was uh, a curious, curious situation we found ourselves in. Um, but we came out all right and somehow managed to win, and that was a very fond memory. Um, yeah, one game in France, I think we turned up and got cancelled because the, the field was frozen. Uh, we had to come back the next week or something like that to, to play it. So that was a interesting one, but yeah, not too many off the top of my head, something I'd have to think about. But, uh, yeah, you kind of see see everything at some stage. So we're just going to wrap up with some uh, quick fire rounds uh, from the fan questions. 
And then uh, I know you've got your meeting uh, after this, so we'll uh, wrap up there. Um, so the the first fan question is: your if you were the you're the captain and you're playing in your dream position, who's who's playing alongside you in the back line? Oh, jeez. Um, right, we've probably got uh, Dupont from France inside me. But if I'm allowed to be 10, I'll be a 10. Otherwise, I'd probably, you know, I'd love to have played with or alongside Johnny Wilkinson. Jeez. Um, but, yeah, you'd probably want a big ball carrier. Probably a, uh, we'll go Martin Onu. He'd, he'd make it a bit easier for me. Um, I suppose someone like a Brian O'Driscoll at centre would have been good fun. Um, and now I'd like a bit of firepower out wide. Probably John Onu. Can I pick him? Um, and as a Kiwi guy, you know, one of my guys growing up was Christian Cullen. He was pretty good. And and one guy um, I'd love to have played with, and he still plays now, it's, it's Josh Chusova. He's that guy's a, a wrecking ball. He would have been a uh, hell of a good fun. But, geez, I could name five back lines I would have loved to have played with. And, and some of those guys I played with. So, yeah, that would be a pretty good back line to, to marshal, I guess. Sounds like a hell of a hell of a squad you've got there. Some r- real wrecking balls uh, getting over the game line. I think uh, a lot of... The- Tursova and uh, Nonu were at uh, Toulon at the same time, weren't they? Yeah. Plasteroux as well. For one yep, 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 yep. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I played against them. So there we go. They had all sorts of players there at some um, stage. Jeez. That, that was a yeah. saucy back line. Uh, who, what are your predictions for the upcoming World Cup 2023? Yeah, good question. Uh, France at home will be very, very hard to beat. Um, you know, Ireland can win it. New Zealand can win it, and South Africa can win it. I don't think too many other teams at this stage could win it, but, you know, World Cup's a funny thing. So, um, yeah, there'll be an upset. Someone will get tipped over. One of those four will get tipped over and kicked out early. It always happens, and uh, there'll be an upset win. It'll be whoever versus whoever, but it'll be a low low team versus someone. Um, and Argentina always... The underdog at the World Cup that tend to outperform their expectations. So, you have it. So, who, who's who's the winner for you? Who do you think? Um, smart money would be on France, but you know that that can not be smart money too, because I think as soon as French are favourites, they um, they might not perform to it. But uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to see them win it. You know, I just think uh, it would be great. But um, when I say I'd love to, obviously, I'd love the All Blacks to win it, but. Uh, yeah, I think it would be uh, an exciting World Cup to have those two teams. I'd, I haven't looked at the draw to figure out who could play who, but uh, yeah, I think the four teams that I mentioned earlier should be should be there or thereabouts. It depends on which France team kind of shows up, I guess. Um, and well, they the... need a little. They need. Sorry, I was just they, they need a little bit of underdog about them, and then all of a sudden they're very, very dangerous. And uh, yeah. And the final question comes from Josh Didi. And he'd like to know who's the toughest opponent you've ever come up against. Yep, uh, I suppose younger days it was probably Ma. Um, I didn't like playing against him; he was pretty scary and intimidating. But you know, when I got to France, you know, I mentioned Josh Tuisova. Um The other one was um, Botia. He was a guy I didn't like to play against as well. Um, and um, a guy I love to play with. I'll just change. I'll just ask my own question. Was um, Nemanja Nandolo, geez, I love playing with him. He was, uh, I never played with Jonah, but um, that would have been the closest to me how it felt. When I was at the Crusaders with me, it was just, you know, we're in trouble, give the ball to him. So I would have uh, 
would have hated to have played against him, but thankfully he was on my team for the most part. Yeah, he was a hell of a wrecking ball down down that wing uh, before yeah. when he joined Crusaders. Well, that's that's all of the fan questions for today. Uh, Colin, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much for your time. And um, where where can the fans find you if they want to get in touch? Um, I suppose just on Instagram. Uh, it's probably the best way. Uh, love, love engaging on there. So uh, if there's anything I can uh, help with or anything, then hit me up. Thank you very much, Colin. And uh, thank you for the audience for listening to this episode of the Champagne Rugby Podcast. And we'll uh, see you next time.